Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the year, and uh, it's my joy to be bringing you God's Word this morning. Uh, it is my custom uh, to pray before I preach, so just allow me to pray, please. Um, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and Lord, we acknowledge our need of you. Lord, we so desperately need you. You've given us yourself, you've given us your scriptures, and even so, Lord, we need your help to understand them. We need your help to apply them. We need your help to be convicted by them. So help us all now to focus on your words, God. And Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. Uh, So use me with your strength to deliver your message, I pray. Amen. I have a confession to make. Phil will be well aware of this, but I've been working on some renovations on the shower in my ensuite. And that's a good thing, but it has taken a very long time. I've been working on this one shower since May, and I'm still facing a task unfinished. The work has been really slow. And one of the reasons the work has been slow is because I haven't seen the shower. You see, when I go into my ensuite and when I look into the mirror, I'm too busy admiring God's beautiful creation. (laughs) Looking at yourself can be a dangerous thing. We need to look beyond ourselves sometimes and that's the message that, that God has for us today. In the book of Malachi, if you can turn there, we'll see this message. So the book of Malachi was written by the prophet Malachi, whom we don't know much about, but the name Malachi means messenger. And so if you will, we have a messenger delivering us God's word. Now this morning I'd actually like to look at the whole book. And we're going to see in this book several things. We're going to see five complaints from the people of Israel. Five complaints from the people of Israel. But what I really want to focus on is God's response. To each response, to each complaint, God is going to plea with the people of Israel. And so we're going to look at five pleas from our God with his people, then and now. So without further ado, let's get into the book. So the first plea from God is look beyond yourself and admire God's love. Look beyond yourself and admire God's love. This is found in the first five verses of Malachi 1. Now, let me read them for you, please. Malachi 1, verse 1. An oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, 
Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. First things first, we need to admire God's love. You see, if if you're unaware of God's love, you're going to become like the people of the passage. Bitter, grumbling, complaining. But to know God's love is to find contentment. Now, the people doubted God's love. In verse 2, you'll see their complaint, and their complaint is, how have you loved us? And this is the complaint that God responds to. See, the people doubted God's love. And if you look at the people's surroundings, you might be able to drum up some sympathy. Because the people, they were free from captivity, so they weren't in Babylon anymore, but they were still under the thumb of a Persian governor. And the city of Jerusalem really wasn't that impressive. There was still work to be done. And the temple was there, but it wasn't as grand as Solomon's. And they also had these neighbouring Edomites to the southwest who kept attacking them. So all in all, the people's situation really wasn't that great. And they were looking around and seeing that and doubting God's love. To see God's love... Malachi says the people must look beyond themselves. He directs them to what God is thinking and doing when he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. To understand this, we need some context. So Jacob and Esau are the twin sons of Isaac. And Isaac is very special because he received a covenant from God. A covenant which involved lots of things, but one of those things was God saying to Isaac, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. And then God decided to pass that covenant on to Jacob and not Esau. So in that way, Jacob received a fuller expression of God's love. Now the Israelites of the day were descended from Jacob. And so this covenant applied to them. God was saying to them, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. On the flip side, the Edomites, whose destruction is mentioned in this passage, they were descended from Esau and they did not receive the covenantal blessing from God. In a nutshell, God is saying, look at this promise I have made, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. When you see this promise and see its fulfilment, how can you doubt my love? You see, by judging the wicked Edomites, God is fulfilling his promise to curse those who curse Israel. The Edomites were really a thorn in in Israel's flesh and their wickedness was highlighted uh, when Israel was going into captivity several years earlier. And the Edomites taunted them, mocked them, raided them and even joined in the attack. And so they're finally getting their comeuppance from a god. A God who is faithful to his promises and through it all is showing his love. But the forgetful Israelites, they'd forgotten this promise. They were prone to forgetting and prone to doubting God's love. Now if you're a Christian here this morning, if you want to remember God's love, you need to look beyond your surroundings and just admire God's promises that he's fulfilling. The promise of the Holy Spirit the promise of eternity with Christ, the promise of being held securely in his hand, the promise of his return, of wisdom and comfort and guidance. 
We need to fill our minds with these promises and thus admire God's love. And so that concludes uh, the first section. Look beyond yourself and admire God's love. And that brings us to uh, the next section, the next plea from God. Look beyond yourself and appreciate God's name. Look beyond yourself and appreciate God's name. There's quite a bit to this. This is found um, chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 9. And I won't read it all, uh, but I will give you the highlights. Look beyond yourself and appreciate God's name. So when you get to verse 6, God is drawing his attention from the generic whinging of the people to the specific whinging of the priests. So the priests are complaining. They're saying, how have we despised your name? How have we shown contempt for your name? And God gives the answer very clearly. The priests have shown contempt for God's name through their poor sacrifices. Now again, a little bit of context. Leviticus gives the rules for what God expected from his animal sacrifices in the days of Israel. One of the main criteria for these animal sacrifices were that they would be spotless animals. No fault with the animal at all. Blemish-free. The best available. And the reason was because God deserved the very best. And this was the principle that was to be applied to animal sacrifices. The priests weren't meeting that requirement. You'll look in verse uh, 7 and verse 8, uh, sorry, you offer blind animals in sacrifice. You'll also see in the passage that they offer lame animals and diseased animals. So they're going the complete other end and offering the worst kind of animals available. And their actions are saying, God, we're just going to give you something. We'll just give you whatever's left over. You know, we're going to kill this animal anyway. Let's just sacrifice it to the Lord. They weren't giving God the best. And it's a stern warning for us because even though the Levitical days of offering up animal sacrifices have passed, the principle that God deserves the best still applies. Whatever we give God, we must give him nothing but the best. So when we serve God um, in the church or in our own families, we need to do so without grumbling because God deserves the best. When we're praying, we need to make sure we set aside time to commune with God, really and truly, because he deserves the best. God deserves the best in everything that we do, and I say this as God's messenger, but to my shame not as God's example, for I am guilty of not giving God the best. But what I'd really like to do is let God's word hammer home the point in Malachi 1, 10 and 11. Read along with me, please. God says in Malachi 1.10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place... Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
Does that make clear how God appreciates his name? How he values his name to be honoured above all other names? If you don't appreciate God's name now, you will be forced to bow the knee before Christ in the end times. So let's take God's name seriously and really appreciate it. But how about that part of God saying, shut the temple doors? He was saying, just stop. Just stop bringing sacrifices altogether. I'd rather have nothing than these crummy sacrifices. God would rather have no sacrifices than bad sacrifices. And that's a pretty stern warning for us today. I'd like you to imagine um, a messenger from God coming through into the church right now. And the messenger from God says to us, Oh, that one of you would shut the doors to new community church so no one can get in. Oh, that no one would sing those useless songs or pray those barren prayers because their heart isn't in it. I am not pleased with you and will not accept your so-called worship. When we come to God, we have to be careful because God's name is at stake. We want to worship him in the fullest, truest and purest sense. And bringing him anything but the best is showing contempt for his name. For this reason, we must keep short accounts with God. We must regularly confess our sin. And whenever we come to worship him, we must do so in a heartfelt and genuine manner. Giving him the best that he deserves. So are you whinging about how hard your service is to God or bringing God's sloppy seconds in your prayer life? We need to look beyond ourselves and appreciate God's name. This brings us to the next plea. Look beyond yourself and aspire to intimacy. Look beyond yourself and aspire to intimacy. This is found in Malachi 2, verse 10, through to verse 16. I will read this section, starting at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favour from your hand. But you say... Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Verse 10 starts off by retracing the Jewish roots. God is referring the people of Israel back to their fathers. And their fathers are Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who I mentioned earlier. The fathers that God made that covenant to. I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. What God is really saying in this first part here from verse 10 onwards is, I made this covenant with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and I've been 100% faithful to it. I've kept this covenant with you Israelites for hundreds of years and been 100% faithful to it. Yet you are being faithless to your wives and in so doing, you're being faithless to me. Having drawn the comparison and stated the crime, there's more detail given in verse 11. You see, the ultimate crime is referred to as Judah marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, this is a, a metaphorical and generic way of saying that the, the people of Israel have married foreign women. And in marrying these foreign women, they're being drawn away from the worship of Yahweh. And they're being drawn towards worshipping false gods. You see, by making this marriage to a foreign woman, these, these Israelites are leaving their set-apart stance as God's representatives and are heading towards being just like the pagans. They're losing that special identity. And it was explicitly forbidden by God for the Israelites to marry foreign women. They became more like the pagans and less like the witnesses of God they should have been. So the application today isn't so much that we shouldn't marry foreigners, but that we should marry those who are equally yoked. God has put this important restriction on those we are to marry, and they are to be Christian. And in so doing, we'll maintain that intimacy with God, and we won't be drawn into becoming more like the pagans. But, there is another aspect to Israel's sin. Not only were they marrying these foreign women, but they were divorcing their original wives to do so. And they thought this was normal and okay. You know, they'd given their old wives a certificate of divorce, and then they'd married these new ones, perfectly legally, according to them, and then they'd gone to the temple and, and made their sacrifices. And you can see, in verse 13, that, in verse 13 and 14, they're shocked that God isn't accepting their sacrifices. They basically say, why? Why is God ignoring our offerings? What the people had done is they'd separated their personal life from their worship of God. They'd done what they wanted to hear and indulged their own desires and then gone to the temple and expected God to be okay with it. And another warning for us today, that our worship of God encompasses our whole life. And if we want to be pleasing to God, we need to be pleasing to God all throughout the week, not just on Sundays. God says plainly in this passage that he wants two to become one. And when two become one, they stay as one in the eyes of God. 
And this is an important principle that the people of Israel were ignoring. The divorces were occurring for no real reason. But interestingly, just because the state recognised the divorce doesn't mean God recognised it. If you read the passage again, you'll notice that God is subtly accusing the people of polygamy. He's saying, stop being unfaithful to your wife by having these foreign wives. So even though the people had divorced their original wife, God is still accusing them of being faithless to their wife because marriage is a covenant that God takes seriously. And yes, there is an exception given in Matthew 5.31 for divorce, but the principle that God has put in place is the same. And if you look at verse 16, you'll get that gist of what God feels about divorce. Now, verse 16 is an interesting one because different translations say quite different things, but the main principle is this from verse 16. God hates divorce and God hates violence. So if God is equating divorce with violence, it's something we should steer clear of at all costs. In everything that Israel was doing, they were being faithless. They were breaking the faith. Faithless to God and faithless to their wives. What's the opposite of breaking faith? It's intimacy. And so intimacy is what all of us need to aspire to. See, if the Israelites were intimate with God, they would have realised that they weren't right with God, that their actions were wrong and they needed to repent. But they didn't have that intimate relationship and so continued on in their sin and their false worship as it turned out. Let us all aspire to intimacy with God that we may know him and his commands. But there's also a special warning for all married couples. Aspire to intimacy with your spouse. Don't break the faith with your spouse because breaking the faith with your spouse is akin to breaking the faith with the God who oversaw the marriage. So intimacy can be hard, but we need to look beyond ourselves and our own needs and start reflecting God's good heart. Look beyond yourself and aspire to intimacy. We'll now move on to the fourth plea. I'll go to the next page. Look beyond yourself and anticipate God's return. Now, as you can see on the screen, this comes up in two sections and there's two complaints from the people. I'd like to read them from the scriptures, please. Look beyond yourself and anticipate God's return. Let's just start with what the people were complaining about. Chapter 2, verse 17. And chapter 2, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And again, these people are expert grumblers and they complain. In chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, So chapter 3, verse 13, the people are complaining and the words are recorded. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Blessed. 
Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Pretty easy to see the people's complaint here. Where's the God of justice? Why are the wicked prospering? And they were seeing this in their life and they were saying, well, hang on, if God isn't going to punish the wicked, why don't we get involved? And it's very easy for us in our lives to fall into the same trap, to put on those temporary lenses and and only look around us and see evil prospering. And whether it be that, that unscrupulous workmate who is advancing quicker or whether your long hours at work are going unrewarded or even just watching the news and seeing a terrorist succeed, it's not hard to look around and see evil prospering. But that's not where we are to look. God urges the people to look beyond themselves. And this is what they have to do. Now, where are we to look? Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. God's answer is swift and clear. They need to look beyond themselves, beyond the present, and appreciate what God is going to do when the Messiah comes. These people who are struggling to see justice in their own life, They're going to see justice all over the place when the Messiah comes. So if we're looking around and we're seeing evil prosper and we're thinking that maybe God is unjust, we need to look forward and anticipate God's return and see what the Messiah is going to do. In those verses we read, we just saw a hint of what Jesus is going to get up to when he comes. He's going to purify the temple. He's going to get the Levites and make them pure. And we've seen what the priests were doing in the day with their crummy sacrifices. He's going to fix all that, and they're going to bring pure sacrifices to the temple. And God has this special plan where the evil and the wicked are going to be judged. But there's going to be great rejoicing in the kingdom of the Messiah, which we know is Christ reigning for a thousand years. And we look forward to that, because unless we look forward to God delivering his justice, unless we anticipate God's return, we can get down when we see all the injustice in the world. This is why it's it's just so important to know eschatology, to know the study of future things. You show me a person who's complaining that God is unjust and I'll show you a person who doesn't get it that the Messiah is coming to make things right. Or you show me a person who truly anticipates Jesus' return and is really looking forward to the Messiah coming and I'll show you someone who has a good grasp of God's justice. 
As I mentioned earlier, Malachi really wants the people to look beyond themselves and anticipate God's return. And yes, this passage is in two sections, but at the end of the book, Malachi is going over the same things. The Messiah is coming, the wicked are going to be judged, and the righteous are going to be rewarded, risen with healing in his wings. And the same message is repeated because it's the same complaints repeated. This morning, I can only barely touch on what Christ is going to do. And so I urge you, in your spare time, anticipate God's return by reading. What is he going to do? Read the book of Revelation and get excited for Jesus' coming. Read the servant songs at the end of Isaiah and appreciate that sacrificial servant. Read the word. Anticipate God's return. And may our grumbling cease as we look beyond ourselves and see the coming Messiah. God has one more plea with the people of Israel and one more plea with us today. His fifth plea, look beyond yourself and aid God's ministries. Look beyond yourself and aid God's ministries. I'll read this. This is from chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. Follow along, please. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I'm not sure if you noticed, but um, God is coming down with some pretty harsh accusations here. He's telling the people, return to me. These are religious Jews. These are people who you know, are giving a little bit to God's work and, and they're going to God's temple. And yet God says to them, return to me. And so it's just a thought for us who would be Christians here this morning. Are we really communing with God? Or is God saying to you, return to me and I'll return to you? Now in verse 8, God gets even more specific and says the people are robbing the Lord. Now the people, they're just just gobsmacked. And their complaint is here. How are we to return and how have we robbed you? You see, the people were looking at what they were bringing God. They were looking at the money that they were giving God and the sacrifices they were bringing God. And in their minds they're saying, God, we've given you all this, If anything, you're robbing us by withholding blessing and withholding rain. 
What's going on? But this self-focus is very deceitful. See, they looked at their own lives and perceived it to be pleasing and worthy of blessing. And if they looked beyond themselves, they might have seen that their works weren't pleasing and that God was worthy of more. And so I pray that we too will be those that don't just look at what we do and what we bring to God and how we serve God and what we give to God. Because if we focus on on what we're doing for God, then we can become conceited and we can start expecting blessing from God. We need to look beyond ourselves. Now God pinpoints the problem in verses 9 and 10. It's the tithes and the offerings. Now the tithes, which I'm hoping most of you are aware of, because Jeff mentioned it in his Corinthian series, but the tithe was a tax. So 10% was the tithe. And the people had to give that to the priests by law, just so that the priests would have food and money and be able to do their job. But the people were not bringing in the full tithe. Now this, this started a vicious cycle. So the people didn't bring in their tithe, and so the priests didn't have enough money. And so the priests would have to look for work elsewhere and go to the temple less. But if they're going to the temple less, then when your everyday Israelite comes to the temple, there's not as many priests there to service him. So he's less inclined to go and he's less inclined to give. And it starts again. The people aren't giving. The priests are leaving. Therefore, the people aren't coming. The people aren't giving. And it all started with the people not giving. But it wasn't just the tithe. The people's offerings were under scrutiny too. And this was their free will, monetary contributions to the work of God. God asked the Jews of Malachi's day, just like he asked us today, to give generously to God's work. To give as God has prospered you. 1 Corinthians 16. If you've been given much, then give much to God. And here's a thought for us. The people were taking from God what was his. Because that's what it means to rob someone, right? To take what's theirs. And so the implication, when you think about it, God owns everything, which we know, but we don't live out. Because if God owns everything, God made everything, God owns everything, then even when we work and we earn money, which we should, That money is provided by God and is owed to God, for he owns everything. And this is the mindset we need. When we look beyond ourselves, we can see our God as the maker of everything and the owner of everything. And thus he's worthy of our everything. We also need to look beyond ourselves and see the ministries of God that need help. Now, wherever they might be, this church or or outside, we need to be looking to see where God's work can be helped. You see, the people of the day, they should have noticed that the priests were going hungry. And when they saw less priests at the temple, they should have clicked, oh, they probably aren't being given enough. But they were just looking at themselves. And so what we need to do is make sure we're looking at our God, who is the owner of everything, and looking for ways to help. God's ministries. And I know, um, as I speak to you this morning, I'm speaking to generous people. You know, our pastor always has his salary paid, 
The expenses of the church are being met, and so I do thank God for that. I really do. But I pray that we don't become complacent. I pray that we don't become conceited. And I pray that none of us robs God. It's also worth noting, I can't go without saying, um, what God says at the end of that little passage, 10 to 12. God is daring the people to give. He's saying, give. You know, give generously and see if I don't provide. And when we apply that to ourselves today, God is still the same. He still has a generous heart. But when he promises us blessings, he's promising us the good stuff, the eternal stuff. And rest assured, God's going to meet your needs too, if he meets the needs of the sparrow. And so you have this option. Give generously and experience the blessing of a generous God, or rob God and go under his curse. And so that's where Malachi leaves that section. Look beyond yourself and aid God's ministries. And so ends our look at the book this morning. Let me just go over those pleas from God again. Look beyond yourself and admire God's love. Look beyond yourself and appreciate God's name. Look beyond yourself and aspire to intimacy. Look beyond yourself and anticipate God's return. Look beyond yourself and aid God's ministries. And so I leave you this morning, you know, with a choice again. If you wish to be a whinging, complaining, self-focused Christian, then you can be. Just keep looking at yourself. But if you wish to experience the blessing of God and have intimacy with God and know God's love and look forward to his return, then look beyond yourself and see God. Thank you for your attention this morning. Um, I'd just like to ask Jeff to uh, close the service for us. Thank you, Jeff.